you know, the best relationships, really, the most functional relationships are the ones where we have a mutual concern for each other's welfare. So although there is probably a, a bias towards being selfish in some ways or being focused on yourself, there is also a benefit to thinking about other people and how to work that out. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. So today we have a very special guest with us in the studio. His name is uh, Ward Struthers. Now, Ward is a university professor at uh, York University in Toronto, and he is a professor of a course uh, called Social Psychology. Um, So without further ado, I'd like to introduce him. Thank you, Ward. Thanks, Kapil. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here too. Um, So the reason why I invited uh, Ward onto the show is because I I was once a student at York University. I majored in kinesiology and health sciences. Um, A lot of people who know me don't know that. Um, I studied uh, kinesiology and health sciences and, um, you know, I had a, the option to take a few electives. And during my last year, I took uh, social psychology because I read the, um, the intro to the course and it just really appealed to me. Um, and it was one of the best courses I've ever taken. And it taught me so much about life and uh, it's really relevant to what this podcast is about. So um, I want to know, Ward, what is the field of social psychology? Yeah. So... There's lots of ways of defining it. Um, the, the college definition is the scientific study of how we think about how we influence and how we relate to one another. And it explores issues in terms of thinking about ourselves and others, the self-concept, attributions, how we infer the reasons for why things happen, it has to do with prejudice, discrimination, um, other topics revolve around how we influence one another. So um, conformity, uh, obedience, uh, persuasion, group influences, and then ultimately it explores things like aggression, helping and relationships. That's really interesting. And how did you get into this field? Like how, what, what, yeah. what struck you about it? What interested you? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I had a, you know, we all have uh, influential family members and I had a, an uncle who was very influential and uh, sort of pushed me. And he, uh, he was an entrepreneur and a businessman. And um, uh, he, I started out in business really? and uh, yeah, I, I, and uh, took uh, introductory psychology and got turned on to this thing called uh, organizational psychology, which is an offshoot of social psychology. And, um, and so that, um, was a way that I thought I would be able to work with him and interact with him and do that. And, and, uh, and so that's, I I sort of got out of business right away and started studying psychology and then really got turned on to other aspects of psychology and, and becoming a scientist. Um, and then, uh, because organizational psychology is an offshoot of social psychology, um, I sort of learned about it through that channel. No, that, that's that's really interesting. And um, so, did you? What did you study your undergrad in? Yeah, so my undergraduate was in psychology. Oh, okay. I majored in psychology ultimately, but I started out uh, in business and one, and then switched over really quickly. You know, in your first year, right, right. Really, what are you studying? And then, so I just. Uh, uh, 
progressively narrowed in terms of uh, studying psychology, got an honors degree and then went off to graduate school and studied specifically social psychology at graduate school. What was it about the the field that really intrigued you and made you actually, you know, pursue it to such a high level? Yeah, it's, um, I, it, I think it was um, about the topics, but also science. I really enjoy science and, yeah. and fell in love with that. Um, and yeah, it just, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you knew this, but probably the most popular course on campus on any university campus is introductory psychology. Mm-hmm. And likely the next most frequently taken course is social psychology. Really? But people, people just seem to not know about the course. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it, it, within psychology, definitely that is the case yeah. outside of psychology. Then of course um, there are issues. I think there's a, a um, an issue with social psychology too. A lot of people misinterpret the term social and what it means. And they think it might be fun or easy or right. those kinds of things. And it's, you know, it's quite a difficult course ultimately to uh, to take, but it's very relevant to our lives. And I think the people that do take it fall in love with it because yeah. of its relevance to to our lives. So, and, and I want to talk more about that. So you said that it is really relevant to our life. Um, how do you feel learning about social psychology can help individuals in the society with our day-to-day? Yeah. So if you, again, buy into that idea that we are social beings and we need each other to survive and get our genes promoted or to reproduce, then it truly is fundamental to everything we do. And I don't want to sound too full of myself, but no. uh, probably all professors because Not know, at all. they might feel that what they study is, is fundamental, but it truly is. I mean, um, we do need each other or this thing wouldn't be happening. Um, so it has a relevance to you know, everything, how, you know, how we form and maintain relationships, Mm -hmm. uh, what we do when we're in relationships and things go awry and how we manage those situations. It has to do with things that are relevant to a lot of people in this world in terms of prejudice and discrimination, uh, aggression, helping, and, and generally studying different kinds of relationships from you know, close romantic relationships to friendships, to parent-child relationships, to coworker relationships. It's, it's relevant to, um, to all aspects of our life. Now I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a personal experience and what I think, um, the ways that I feel this course affected me. Um, so I was in my fifth year. Um, so I took an extra year and kind of just took an extra year to figure out what I wanted to do next and where I was going. Um, you know, and, um, I I was kind of just juggling a bunch of things. I was finishing to kinesiology. I was working in, in fundraising, Mm -hmm. which eventually catapulted me into a career of corporate sales. And that's where I am now. So eventually I had a career in sales. Also, I was interning at a radio station because I love music and I was just doing all these things. And, um, at the same time as I was taking as the social psychology, I was taking introduction to marketing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the themes actually overlapped which was very interesting. Yeah. The themes overlapped and I could apply my learnings in social psych to my learnings in marketing and my learnings in marketing to my learnings in uh, social psychology. And after taking the course, it made me kind of think, Hmm, if I was on the other side of the coin, how would I be thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, I, sir, okay. Me and so-and-so are in an argument, but you know, if I am that person, 
what am I seeing on this side? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what this course really opened my mind up to was perspectives. It really opened my mind up to what are other people thinking and, you know, why do they think this? And we're going to go into some of the themes later on in this interview, the themes uh, of the course. But um, I remember actually my first day in the class, um, you said something about uh, human beings and saying that, you know, human beings, there's a theory that says human beings are selfish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no matter what we do, every decision comes down to us and how this can benefit me. Can you talk on that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it would be odd um, to find a human being that wasn't, you know, partial to their own, you know, uh, concerned about their own welfare. Right. So we, we really, you know, again, going back to natural selection, um, you know, probably it favored human beings that, uh, had evolved motivational systems that, um, led to them acting in their own best interest. So we have a, a tendency towards that for sure. But it's also um, not difficult to imagine that uh, if you buy into this idea that we need each other and we have to form social bonds to survive and, and reproduce, that we would make adjustments right. uh, and take into, the perspective, uh, take into account the perspective of, of other people um, in that process in forming bonds. And in fact, you know, the... the, uh, the best relationships, really, the most functional relationships are the ones where um, we have a mutual concern for each other's mm -hmm. welfare. Um, so although there is probably a, a bias towards um, being selfish in some ways or being focused on yourself, there is also um, a benefit to thinking about other people and how to work that out. <laughs> Why do you think it's hard to find those, to make those types of relationships where people genuinely just mutually care about one another? Yeah. Um, I think they're out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're constantly in any interaction, we're constantly weighing um, the costs and benefits uh, in terms of um, our, our welfare and the other person's welfare. Right. Um, and, and we're taking that into account all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, like when, when you're driving home and, um, you know, there's a whole lineup of cars in a row and you, pro you know, you should probably get in behind there and wait your turn, but there's always somebody who drives up there hoping that they can kind of I've done that in. sometimes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it sometimes. I'm, I'm sure every driver has done that to some extent. And, and what is that sort of saying that, uh, I'm not really concerned about you. I'm more concerned about myself, right? Yep. Uh, my own welfare. And I'm going to try and butt in <sighs> and, and do those kinds of things. And so, um, there's, and yet there's other times or there's people who let that person in. Right. And yeah. so we're, we're weighing these things all the time in terms of concern for our own welfare and concern for other people. And, um, and it affects whether we behave well or poorly <laughs> when we're right. interacting with other people. I've, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And sometimes I even, I, I honestly, I think about it and I reflect on myself and I think about when I have a genuine concern for a friend or a family member. And I sometimes I think about, it, I'm like, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm genuinely concerned. I'm willing to help them because it will make me feel good. By all means. If I help them. Yeah. So I'm like, think about it. I'm like, maybe this is selfishness from the root, you know? Yeah. But then I think about it. I, I do think about it, I'm like, like why, why would we ever do anything if it doesn't benefit us? 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, and ultimately, this is one of the conundrums, right? Like, you know, there's lots of issues around altruism, whether it actually exists or not, uh, you know, helping other people without any regard for yourself. Right. And it's a difficult one for people who study evolution, social psychology to resolve. And maybe it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, is it, is there a, is there a problem with, you know, if you're ultimately doing this to satisfy yourself, but it benefits the other person? I think we will weigh those things in all sorts of, um, but but there's lots of people who will also sacrifice for other people as well. They will, um, you know, they will um, sacrifice more than they're getting right. back out of those. You, you, as a parent, you do that for your children, right? Right, right. Because, um, and you'll do it for siblings. You'll even do it for friends. There may even be individual differences, you know, who are the people that are first responders? Right. You know, they run into burning buildings, um, you know, for what? I'm sure it's not for a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, no, that, 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 that's an interesting take on things. But, you know, when I think about, well, even, okay, now here's the thing. If we go to someone who runs into a burning building um, and actually, well, this was one of my later questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll jump into it now. If you think about a person who is jumping into the burning building, they might think, you know what? This is my purpose. This is my purpose in life. This is what I was put on earth to do. This is my job. And I have to do this because, you know, it just, it, it, con it contributes to their ego or sure. whatever it might be. So, at the end of the day, is that, can that possibly not be selfishness? Sure. So, I, I, again, that's why it's so hard to test because one could say, yeah, but they're sacrificing their life. And in fact, some do, yeah. right? They do. And, and then the critics of that will say, well, but then they sort of go down in history. There's exactly. no one, yeah. those kinds of things. So there can always be a challenge to that. I think it's very difficult to disentangle that, but, um, you know, uh, if we don't have those kinds of things, then is it all about, you know, self-actualization, self-aggrandizement, libertarian kind of lifestyle where I just do what I want to do and I don't care about you, right? Yep. But that has an end game, right? I mean, that if that's how it works, then the bigger, smarter people, like it, you know, was back in the day, get everything and the other people <laughs> yeah. don't, you know? <laughs> so, well, yeah. So that was going to lead me into my, my, my next question. I mean, I, and I hear that we live in Toronto. I hear Toronto is like notorious for this, but, um, why do you think some people become such workaholics and they only find identity in their work? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not sure I have the exact answer to that question, yeah. but, um, you know, work is a big part of our life, right? It's how we earn our income. It's how we pay the bills. It's, it, you know, puts a roof overhead, all those kinds of things, but it makes up a big part of who we are as well. So it's part of our identity, our self-concept. Um, and so, you know, I think those things are fed, <laughs> feed into that. And that's one of the reasons why we might work hard at something. Um, we might work hard at something, again, to support our family and, and do all of those kinds of things. It, it might also be a way to avoid other things as well. So it could be used in a lot of ways, right? You might be, um, you know, avoiding other issues in your yeah. life and working hard. So I think it could, uh, there could be multi factors that are contributing towards, you know, people being workaholics. Right. Um, but it is, it's a big part of uh, our job. People who are doing 
um, things that they would consider important. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of hard work and devotion to, to do, to do science, to, you know, be a teacher, to be a, you know, a physician, um, to, to be an entrepreneur, right? Um, when everything's resting on your shoulders, it really can't let up. Um, you got to make this thing happen. So I think that those are some of the reasons why people become workaholics. Yeah, no, honestly, that was the same. That's exactly how I would see it. I mean, we all, at the end of the day, I feel like we all, or a majority of us, I have to say, well, we'll find some sort of void in our life and we'll find a way to fill it. You know, whether that's through Netflix, whether that's through the gym, yeah. whether that's through whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, your, 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 um, your teachings, um, your, your courses, they talk about, you know, social bonds and how we need that to survive. How long do you think human beings would survive without social bonds? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think not long and uh, I'm happy to report I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, uh, but I often will ask students in my class that question on the very first day to try and press upon them the importance of bonds right from the get-go. As soon as somebody's born, I'll ask them, how long would an infant last without its mother? And again, not, no, nobody to this date has come up with the answer to that. And again, I'm happy about that. But I think it really impresses upon people that we need each other from right, right from the get-go. Uh, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> now, I think this, this concept can become a little complicated in today's society because nowadays, uh, well, first of all, loneliness is at a huge epidemic right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one thought about this before, but I was even hearing the news how you know, loneliness is just affecting so many people, which is causing people to feel that, feel that, you know, feel that emptiness in their li lives. Um, but I'm, we're also hearing a lot of people promoting the fact that, you know, it's okay. You should be single or you should be single as long as you want to be, or, you know, you don't need to start a family if you don't want to. And it's okay to be, you know, uh, at a certain age, uh, without a family, without children. And that, that to me, um, I, everyone has a different way of looking at it, but the way I see it, that to me can, can promote loneliness to somebody and can cause someone to go deeper into their work or deeper into something else sure. where they can invest their time. But, um, yeah, like, I just want to know, like, what do you, what do you think about that when people come out and kind of promote the idea that, you know what, we don't need social, we, I, I don't need a partner. I yeah. don't need this. I'm happy on my own. I'm, I don't need this. Sure. So that's one kind of relationship. I'm not sure if there's, um, uh, you know, uh, an age factor here, but you know, the vast majority of people bond, um, um, you know, there was uh, something put out by the world health organization that nine out of 10 people worldwide pursue marriage. So the vast majority mm. of us do still want, you know, those kinds of relationships. There's lots of things going on in the world right now that are sort of challenging, at least uh, in Canada yeah. and, and North America in terms of um, our our way of life is changing. So, you know, like a, a lot of people now are not thinking about driving cars. They're not thinking that owning a home is a possibility. Um, and so this affects us, right? In terms of all sorts of things. And I think that that's what's factoring into a lot of these um, things that uh, ideas that people have, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, no, no, that, that, that's a great way to put it. Um, when you say nine out of 10 people pursue marriage. Yeah. So do you think that it could be a, a chance that 
and I'm not saying this about anybody, but perhaps anyone who might be saying that, okay, I don't need anyone or I don't need a partner. Could do you think that could be coming from a place of, of being, of feeling hurt of pursuing, of sure. going on the pursuit and maybe not being happy with the outcome? Sure. I think, you know, uh, although we, um, although we do need to bond with other people. That doesn't mean we need to bond with everybody. And right. there's people we should and shouldn't bond with, and they may have had bad experiences, um, all sorts of, but, you know, again, um, and, and maybe people are satisfied by having friends um, rather than, uh, you know, a wife or a husband or right. a marital partner. Um, but, yeah, I think still most people uh, would pursue marriage and ultimately want to have children right. and procreate, um, you know, pursue those things. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, speak about um, a few of the themes that we, that we, we, we had in the course. Yeah. Um, so the first, um, first I wanted to, to, to compare was actually the differences between collective and individualistic cultures and what effect this might have on an individual in our society? Sure. Um, so th again, it's a topic I know a little bit about, not a lot, but uh, one of the, um, uh, one of the dominant theoretical views in terms of cultural psychology is um, that there are individualistic and collectivistic cultures and the individualistic cultures are the ones where um people tend to focus on themselves and self-actualizing, you know, reaching their potential and being less concerned about the group and group harmony, more concerned maybe with their own personal harmony rather than the group's harmony where a collective, those who come from a collectivistic culture are more concerned with the group and the, and the group's harmony uh, and less concerned with themselves. And, you know, there are certain countries where the culture is dominant, where it's one of those things or the other, and it's probably just the way things are, but you come to a city like Toronto and there's a real blend of a lot of different mm. kinds of cultures. And so um, you have people that may be raised in a more collectivistic culture. Uh, maybe their parents came from somewhere else or they were raised somewhere else. Uh, and then you have people who were maybe born here or they're their parents have lived here for a long time and they're more individualistic. And then you have the blending of those, <laughs> those two different kinds of cultures. Right. And so if mm -hmm. you're sort of raised in one and then confronted with the other one, then it raises all sorts of issues. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I definitely am a product of somebody who has uh, influences of both. Yeah. You know, my parents um, moved from India in 89. Yeah. And they come from um, quite a collective collective culture. Yeah, absolutely. And when they came here, they told me like, why is everybody out for themselves over here? But and but growing up here, I see the benefits of both. Sure. And I think that's the I think that's the privilege that I have is that I can pick and choose what I want yeah. out of the two. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And you know, uh, I think a lot of people misinterpret, uh, and maybe even I'm misinterpreting to some extent. But you know, uh, collectivism is not sort of like everybody, right? It's sort of like your, your, the people that are close to you. So like your right. families, your friends, those kinds of things, right? That's what yeah. we're really talking about. Um, and so you can still really maintain that and have that and still have this other side too, the individual side uh, where yep. you can, you know, self-actualize and self-promote and those kinds of things. Uh, 
I'm, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we can have both. Yeah. I mean, after studying both of them, yeah. there's benefit, there's pros and cons to both. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we can have, you know, yeah. a mixture of the two. It's just, you just kind of just pick and right. choose where, where you want to draw the line. You sort of have the advantage to some extent where you might be able to be bicultural, is, yeah. you know, where you have the, you have both of those. And when you're in the right environment, you can exactly. sort of think and act consistent with those and, and take advantage of them as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's definitely a privilege. It's definitely a privilege yeah. to, to, to have both of those. Yeah. And it, I guess, you know, where, the, where there could be problems is if, uh, if you didn't have that and you were interacting with the other culture and there were all those expectations that go with yep. that, but you, you have a lot of flexibility as a result of that, likely. Exactly. No, I, I do. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really realize that till, you know, maybe a few years ago, but I mean, that's, that's a part of growing up and yeah. learning. Um, so that actually leads me to, to talk about some of the concepts, some other concepts from the course. And I wanted to talk about the, uh, the differences between integration and assimilation, right. because after taking your course, I can identify between the two, but I often hear people mix them up. Yeah. So assimilation is more just, I guess, when you give in to the dominant culture and, um, and blend in with that more, um, and, uh, and maybe give up your culture to some extent, whereas the uh, integration is more that you maintain yours, but you also incorporate the other. And I think it's um, that latter one there where you have a greater potential to become more bicultural right. um, in, those, in those ways. Um, and, and then I think something also happens. So even with acculturation, like you, um, uh, or assimilation, you, you sort of blend in, but then you also affect the culture as well. You know, like, what does it mean to be a Canadian now? There's just so much culture from so many other places, right? Without looking at individualism, collectivism, but all the culture that comes from all these different places, it's just such a big part of yeah. life in Toronto, right? Yeah. And, um, with that, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with us saying that. What is what does it mean to be Canadian? I don't think there's anything wrong with us saying we're still figuring it out. Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> well, and it's I I, I presume it, it's going to be a work in progress forever, right? right? And unless we all become one, um, and it's it's dynamic, right? right. And people are going to constantly move here and away from here and influence it, and we're going to be influenced by it, and they're going to be influenced, and yeah, it's it's quite a dynamic process if you're open to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about these terms, integration, assimilation, because I mean, nowadays with, when we talk about immigration and a lot of the con, a lot of the things that are happening, I think people kind of get mixed up, um, with, with their terms. Cause there's another term, there's another concept that we learned, um, in the course was separation. And I think separation is when somebody, correct me if, if, uh, if, if, if I'm incorrect, but when someone comes to a, a new country, but does not want to adapt to sure. any of the social, right. any, any of the culture. Um, so I think that honestly, like knowing the difference between these three concepts can really help people adapting, ad adapt into a new society. Yeah, for sure. And there, you know, there are some people that really will separate and remain insulated. They yep. figured out a way to ha continue on some form of life, right? Uh, and we find pockets of that uh, in our fa in families right. and, you know, in areas of town and all I just don't find things. that healthy. Like, I don't no, find it to be healthy at all. Yeah, it's, uh, and I understand that to some extent. It's quite challenging. You know, one of the first sabbaticals I went on, I went to 
Quebec City. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a French speaker. Uh, my kids are and my wife is, but I'm not. But I took it on to, you know, and I, I did the cool thing in grade 10 or the thing that a lot of students do and drop out of French the <laughs> first too. time you could do that, right? And <laughs> I, too, one of my huge regrets in life is yeah. that I did that. So I struggled and went there and it's hard work. It, it's hard work to learn a language. It's hard work to learn about another culture. And I spent a large part of every day trying to teach myself that and things improved, but, um, I can, you can sure see why people, you know, and right. depending on what age you are, all Correct. sorts of, you know, how motivated you are to make this thing happen, what your capacity is, Correct. Um, lots of things that factor into that. Um, I agree to that. Yeah. And maybe the best hope is for the first generation after coming, you know, that there's a real struggle from the people who have the courage to come and, right. and do that. And, um, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I went to India two years ago for the first time in 17 years. Yeah. So for me, when I went, I was just thinking, I'm like, how did my parents leave that, this and come here? Yeah. You know, this is a lot to leave behind. I yeah. mean, it's, uh, I mean, I can understand of course why, but, um, it was just a lot to leave. I'm like, this is not easy to leave like in your thirties and come yeah, here. For sure. I mean, obviously by now that's, you know, they've, they've, you yeah. know, they've settled in and whatnot, but it, it, it was just daunting to even think about that. To just pick up and go. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, you know, I also lived in California and in Los Angeles for a couple of years before I got my position at York. And, um, you know, what's the overlap between Californians and Canadians? I don't know, 80%, 90%, there's significant overlap, but it's still just something was off for me. Even with that, there was still just a little something that was off. And Living there down was, there? Yeah. And like, a, and, and even campus life, you know, it's very consistent all over North America. It probably doesn't really matter what campus you go on. It's similar kinds of people thinking right. in similar ways, all of those things. But there, there is something that's a little different. Um, about, uh, you know, about the weather. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That was a hard thing to leave behind. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I always just longed to come back here. It was home. Really? That's what I knew. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm from out West and, uh, you know, Toronto was always sort of made out to be this big monster, this scary place, cold. And uh, so I was a little nervous about coming here and setting up a life, but I found it to be completely the opposite. I, I love it here. It's, mm-hmm. I, it's home now. And part of that is because it's Canada, you right. know, um, but it's also not what other people made it out to be for sure. Correct. So where you, where did you grow up? In Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'm sure that's a little bit colder than uh, what we, <laughs> we have here. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> um, yeah, no. And another thing that I wanted to get into was the uh, self-confirmation bias. Sorry, yeah. is it self-confirmation or self-confirming bias? Because self-confirmation yeah. bias. Yeah. Self-confirmation bias. And I feel like we kind of, I, I feel like we do this for our own egos. Um, so a lot of the times we want to just, we want to think, um, okay, well this, th- this bottle right here, I know that's a really bad quality uh, water bottle and I'll just try it in here. Oh, yep. It sucks. I knew I was right. Why do we do this? Yeah. Well, I, you know, we look to... <laughs> To support, we we look to events and people to support our view of the world. Yeah, you know, to uh, 
to confirm it. In in many ways, it's probably secure, right? Uh, We will look at other things as well, but it probably makes us feel happy and secure, helps us to make sense of, we don't have to put too much work into that. Um, So I think that that's largely what's at play there. And and do you think that um, like when we're in a group setting, um, uh, like an, another another the- a theme was uh, groupthink. Yeah. So when we are in a group setting, perhaps a group that we want to be part of, or perhaps just a group that we're in in our day to day, how? Well, group thing, basically, from my understanding, actually, can you explain, why don't you explain what group yeah. think is? It's, uh, you know, um, it, 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 group think is really uh, more uh, something that's studied from one of its outcomes, and that's the uh, decisions that come out of, you know, groups. And um, groups that are cohesive, uh, that are you know, where there's, um, where there's, uh, an attempt to be harmonious, um, uh, they, they insulate us from, uh, from facts and other points of view. And so, uh, uh, you know, when, when we're trying to, um, maintain group harmony, when we're trying to be cohesive, we try to get along, uh, try to be consistent with each other, build consensus, but it sort of, um, makes us not look at alternatives. Right. Uh, we, we sort of just affirm each other in that situation. And so it leads to a very biased kind of way of being or a very biased way of making decisions. And we're not really considering other perspectives. We're, uh, we're not um, um, focusing on potential criticisms, um, you know, the consequence, a full range of consequences of our decisions. So it can be, you know, it can be really helpful if it's probably not a really important decision because we all get along and we yeah. can move forward, but it can lead to a lot of bad decision-making as well. Yeah. And uh, I think that some, I think that when people believe in the concept of majority rules and they kind of think that, well, if the majority's thinking it, then it must be right. Yeah, so right. I must... I must agree to it. Yeah, by all means. And that's certainly, um, it's kind of how democracy works, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you feel that, so. Yeah, okay. Um, so there's there's another, I'm just going to go concept to concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> go from one thing to, because I'm loving this conversation. Yeah. Um, but there's one thing that I've been hearing about lately. Um, I was watching this um this uh, podcast with uh, Jada Pinkin Smith called uh, Red Table Talk. Oh yeah. Yeah. So have you heard of it? I haven't. No. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. They, they talk about some interesting concepts, but they were talking about the narcissism epidemic. Yeah. Um, so lately I've been hearing this word being tossed around a lot. Yeah. You're a narcissist. You're a narcissist. Yeah. Um, what, what is the definition of narcissism? And do you think it is, uh, that much of an issue? Is it an epidemic? Uh, I, I would not say it's an epidemic. Um, and, maybe, and maybe that was blown it, yeah, up. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> but there is, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's lots of people who have pointed out those kinds of things. Um, again, it's something that is studied more. So social psychology is often paired with personality psychology. Sure. So it's often social personality psychology. And I err more on the side of social. But my understanding of narcissism is that um, it's, it, 
captures individuals who tend to have these inflated senses of themselves. They have this grandiose view of who they are. Um, it's fragile often. They can be vulnerable and, um, and they'll often be manipulative of other people in order to sort of get reassuring strokes to build up their grandiose sense of self. And, um, and there's certainly people who have this in a ex very extreme way, becomes very clinical, but uh, we all have degrees of that, right? We all, yep, you know, how, how many people don't take a look at themselves in the mirror before they walk out of the house in the morning, right? Mm. To see how they present or, you know, how they look. And so if you think, if you think that there is this thing called narcissism, we all have it to some extent, um, then it's important and it does play a role. It's, it's, uh, I have a, a student who's now in clinical psychology, but he studied, uh, he did his undergraduate honors thesis with me and he's very interested um, in narcissism and, mm. uh, and the role that that plays. Uh, I like to hear more from yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he, you know, he... Um, uh, basically, and we'll get into maybe my work a little bit too, but yep, I'm interested in how people resolve conflict when they have it. And narcissism is a huge factor in, mm. in that, um, you know, the people can tend to be, depending on the interaction between two people, it can wind up leading to aggression and even, um, you know, violence, uh, those kinds of things. So it's yeah. important. Yeah. And there's degrees of this, right? And we degrees in terms of dominant ways of being and degrees in terms of episodes. We yeah. probably have all had, you know, narcissistic episodes, right? And right. might have tendencies towards that. So by all means, it's a, a, a part of life. And I mean, they're, you know... Uh, the, Probably we are more libertarian now. We might be a little bit more narcissistic now, you know, yep. focusing on ourselves and our own, again, self-actualization and self-aggrandizement, all of those kinds of things. We might have an in tendency towards an inflated sense of self. Uh, there might be something to that. I'm not sure if it's epidemic, but uh, we certainly see it. No, for sure. When it comes to struggle, and I feel like a lot of people are so like, oh my God, I have to struggle for this. I have to struggle for this. I want things to change. But I feel people do find identity in the struggle. Like it's like, Absolutely. if it wasn't for the struggle, like who would I be? Absolutely. You know, um, I, I, I use this example. So, um, you know, my wife spent a number of years at uh, summer camp canoeing, you know, and that's, and if, I don't know if you've ever done that, but canoeing. It, yeah. I've but, tried it. But it can be like, if you go on a trip yep. for a week or three weeks or sometimes six weeks, it's like you are, it's a struggle yeah. every day from the bugs to portaging, to paddling, to food, all sorts of things like that. And when you talk to kids that are going through it, it's like, rah, 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 you know, but almost every single adult that I've talked to that had that experience says, I wouldn't have had it another way. Really? You know, that it added, you know, that it taught me so many lessons, mm, Yes, you know? And so I think that that's when we're going through those moments, we may not be appreciating so much, but when you get, when you see the other side of them, I think you can look back and, and appreciate. And, and that generalizes what I've certainly learned in my own struggles. I've been able to generalize to other situations. And the one thing that has really helped me with when I'm in the midst of a struggle is to know that I will see the other side of it. And I just have to keep plodding along and trying to figure out now, you know, probably a lot of things we do in life, you 
have to love that experience to some extent or like that experience to some extent, right. or if you don't like the process and it's just about the outcome and there's a lot of that process, then it might not be worth it. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm one of those kinds of people that, um, that I complain a fair bit when I'm going through the struggle, but I ultimately go through it over and over and over again. And, uh, when I look back, I'm sort of glad that I did that and negotiated it and, and got through it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I want to, I want to start talking about your research. Okay. Um, so, um, what is your area of focus and, um, and yeah, just, yeah. just inform us on, on what you're doing right now. Yeah. So the general area that I work in is called social motivation. And that's basically this process of how we judge and evaluate others. And then based on those judgments and evaluations, how we interact with people. And, um, and again, I'm, uh, sort of the assumption, one of the fundamental assumptions for me again, is that we're social beings and we need each other. And so we spend a lot of time bonding with each other, forming and developing relationships. Um, and the, those most effective relationships are the ones that uh, wind up being relatively stable and satisfying and carried out in a framework of mutual concern for each other's um, welfare. But from time to time in that process, because sometimes we're um, being a little bit more focused on ourselves or what have you, we will exploit other people. We'll commit transgressions. We'll hurt them. Um, you say something to somebody. You don't do something you should have done. And this um, can damage relationships in many ways. And so uh, I've been really interested in how people negotiate their relationships following an interpersonal transgression. And there's a whole range of interpersonal mechanisms that human beings use to do that. From the victim's point of view, they'll sometimes seek revenge. Um, you know, they'll try and get back at, they'll retaliate in order to get back at the person or uh, sometimes they'll harbor a grudge. They'll maintain some kind of negative sentiment uh, and then other times they'll forgive. And on the transgressor side, sometimes they'll apologize and sometimes they won't apologize. And so we've been busy looking at... Um, both the victims and the mm -hmm. uh, transgressors independently, but also how they interact with each other too. How does apology affect the victim's decision to seek revenge or harbor a grudge or forgive? And also how does the victim's response, we call them post-transgression responses, how do those influence the transgressor's motivation to either apologize or not? And, and what's interesting is the two greatest mechanisms for getting us back on track again are forgiveness on the victim side and apology on the transgressor side. But those are two of the most difficult things to do mm -hmm. from the victim's point of view and from the transgressor's point of view. And why would that be? You know, things that could really make this thing happen. We struggle with initiating and carrying those out. And how do you go about carrying out these studies, like where are these studies carried out? Yeah. We, so there's a lot of different methods used in, in social psychology. I'm using a lot of them. Um, most of them are, um, 
more quantitative kind of methods where we'll do surveys, uh, just looking at the association between things. And other times we'll even do experiments where we're actually manipulating variables, uh, randomly assigning participants to different conditions and then measuring their responses. And a lot of those go on in, in my laboratory, um, my social motivation laboratory at York University. But we conduct uh, both survey and experiments online yeah. Uh, with uh, community samples, um, uh, intro psych students, um, and then also within my laboratory as well. So, uh, and then we will, um, and it's, we, we use a combination of things. So I'll often, um, you know, survey a community sample and just see if there's general associations between things that I think there is going to be associations between. And then if that's the case, then I sort of ratchet things up a little bit uh, and invest a little bit more until finally we wind up um, going into the laboratory where we're pretty confident that these variables are going to relate mm. in some way. And so we start manipulating them and I use confederates and try and create uh, situations that are believable to participants to test out mm. some of my ideas. So is it all students that are participating? Not all. So in the community samples, uh, they tend to be on average around, you know, 38, 39 years old, 12 or 14 years of work experience, children, mm. mortgages, uh, diversity in terms of culture, in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of, so they look just like, you know, all of us, okay, uh, the, yeah. but, but my, uh, experiments or lab studies tend to be mostly on, you know, your 19 year old university student, right. uh, and which at York is, um, is quite diverse, diverse in culture, diverse in religion, diverse in, again, sexual orientation and all of the mm -hmm. layers of life. So, and when it, for, for anyone that's involved in the study, that's not a student, um, how do you usually go about um, finding these people to be uh, to be subjects for the study? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways. It turns out there's a, an, a couple of um, platforms. So Amazon has this one called uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk, and there's a bunch of people out there in different parts of the world, North America mainly, that they spend their day basically doing research, as um, completing studies. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, and you can appeal to them, and you have yeah. to pay them to do that. So that's one. So that's the incentive. That So the incentive is, and they get like, it's, I, I'm always amazed by it. You know, they might complete a study. It takes 15 or 20 minutes. They get a dollar for it. So they're basically right. maybe doing, you know, getting paid four or $5 an hour or something like that. And they're doing one study after another. And then, you know, of course you have to question um, the quality of that data when you have people, you know, doing that, but there's other techniques. Um, so, you know, people, you can get students maybe uh, uh, to reach out to uh, non-student adults. Um, I know some things that we've done in the past is we've gone into classrooms and asked students to give a URL to a non-student adult and uh, to compensate the participant. In that case, we hold draws. Mm. So, um, you know, for every 50 or 100 students, we they get their name entered into a draw for uh, a gift card at a right. major retailer or something like that. So they're doing it for science. They're doing it for that as kind of minimal. Uh, they, I think they, so, some people are interested to see how it all works and what the study is about. And mm. so. Yeah. And like when you talked about the quality of the responses, 
you think the quality of the responses are dictated by the incentive? Um, possibly. So, um, again, one of the, uh, you know, one of the big issues right now in science has to do with um, engaging participants in our research. So distraction is a huge part of life in general now from, mm. you know, just in a lot of it has to do with our devices, right? But being sort of disengaged when we're driving or when we're interacting with people, you know, when you go into a, a store and you're interacting with a sales rep or something like that, and you're on your phone, you know, you're, you're really disengaged. And we find the same thing with our participants that, um, that a lot of them are not responding mm -hmm. uh, and they're, or they're falsely responding. Um, and so we have a tool that we use in our surveys to try and detect these people who are distracted. And uh, randomly throughout our surveys, we ask questions where there is only one response that's right to that question. And if they don't respond to that correctly, multiple times, then we're pretty confident that those people are distracted. They have a distracted responding mm. pattern. And those people you just exclude from your study because, yeah. I mean, your hypotheses have to be based on the idea that they at least read the material, right? Yeah. And they were thinking about it and responding <laughs> as you expected. So, Correct. Um, so that's a big issue. Um, right now in science and people are trying to make their studies a little bit more engaging to try and get them to do that. Um, but it's a, it's a bit of a problem in science. We have almost given in to the fact that, you know, 30% of them have to be excluded from any study because they're yep. just not paying attention. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's why, cause a lot of the times, um, I think that's why people want feedback, even with like a new business or anything. People want feedback. So like they want to know, like, what can we do to, to better this? And yeah. I think the, the same, the same idea uh, applies to studies. So how long have you been, um, you know, doing these studies for? Yeah. Um, so basically right from, uh, entering grad school, I mean, as an honor student, I had yep. to do a thesis. So that was one of my first studies that I ever did. Um, and then when you go to graduate school, um, you start doing science right away. Mm -hmm. Um, but really I, 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 I uh, got my PhD in 1995. I went away to UCLA on what was called a postdoc uh, fellowship. And, um, and so that's sort of more or less when I was starting to stand on my own two feet. So around 25 years, I would say somewhere between 25 and 30 years, um, I've been certainly you know, engaging in science. Um, and the topics of your studies, I'm guessing they change like Absolutely. Frequently? For how, sure. How often do they change? Yeah. So, uh, it's an interesting, um, I, uh, so, uh, again, it's different at each institution, but at York, you work six years, uh, in terms of your full range of duties, which is teaching science and administration. And, uh, you get a sabbatical on your seventh year where you can give up your teaching and some of your administrative duties and focus just on your research. And um, my sort of pattern has been um, at, the uh, at the beginning of a sabbatical cycle to try and um, come up with some deep 
questions that I want to answer. Right. Um, and I spend six years trying to answer those questions. I usually get a grant or two in mm-hmm. that period of time. And then by the end of that, I usually feel like, okay, I'm starting to understand what I'm talking about right now or interested in. And then I get my year off, uh, so to speak, in terms of my sabbatical. And I work with other people and develop the next thing that I want to do. And I, I don't, uh, make a 180 degree turn in terms of my research interests. I've been building on that. So I basically make slight adjustments. Um, and that's sort of how it's worked for me. And so it's easy to sort of track, you know, from back in the day when I started to where I am now, the it's pretty linear, right? <laughs> it's, it's certainly veered, but it's, it's linear. And for university professors, how do you go about receiving funding and grants? Yeah. So, um, the, the vast majority of research funding, external research funding comes from the government and there's yep. this thing called the tri-council and depending on the type of science you do, and I do social science. So, uh, the funding agency that I apply to is called the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The acronym is SHRC. Um, and so that's who I apply to. And um, typically the grants are somewhere between three and five years and you have to write a proposal um, outlining what your idea is, um, how you're going to go about doing it, what your needs are in terms of labor, all of those things. And then it goes out for review to qualified experts and they evaluate you and send in their reports. And then a big committee meets in Ottawa every year to make a decision about whether you're successful or not. And if you are, then you get your money and you carry out and, you know, and then you have to report on that along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of how, but there are other um, non-governmental agencies that people can apply to. The, the nice thing about government is it's arm's length. Um, you, you don't, um, you know, if you're being funded by, uh, you know, something that's non-governmental, you might feel a little bit of pressure to, you know, to capitulate and give in to some of their desires and needs. And it could affect the the process of uh, doing science. Is, is that a a stressful time when you're applying for grants? Yeah, absolutely. That the two things that I do not like about my job are the publication process and the uh, granting process. Right, right. And it's, if, if you don't get a grant, it's a lot of work down the tube. So um, I will often, you know, spend two months of hard work putting together a grant. And so if you don't get that, it's like you've just thrown away, yeah. you know, two months of hard work to, to do that. And same with publishing. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes it, uh, some of the feedback makes sense. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. And it's a talk of, you know, we were talking about struggle earlier and challenge. And so that's one of the things where it's really difficult. You're getting negative feedback, you know, all of those kinds of things. So those are the two parts of it that I really don't enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that the, if someone was to get, have you ever actually, have you ever been rejected for a grant? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure that can be quite yeah, discouraging. I think, I think it would be rare to find somebody who hasn't in one way or another. I've been, uh, I've been continually funded, uh, while, um, at York, but, uh, but I've had years where, you know, what happens from time to time is that, um, your grant, is deemed worthy of funding, but they've run out of funds by the time that 
they get to you. Mm -hmm. And so then you get on what's called a revisionary list. And then the next year you apply and chances are you would get it. You would tweak whatever you need to tweak. Are you at like but the top of I, the list or anything like uh, that? No. They, so that's the, that would be great if they did that. In fact, I've thought that that would be a great um, thing to do because um, a lot of your resources have already gone into that. Uh, the external reviewers have spent a great deal of time on it. The committee has spent a great deal of time on it. If they've deemed that it's worthy of, you know, funding, why would you have to go through that process again the next mm, year? Right. And for whatever reason they do. Uh, I've always, uh, that's happened to me twice and I've always received funding the following year. So it's worked out for me um, in that case. And I'm not sure what, uh, what ha if that's the, everyone's case or not mm. that makes that revisionary list, but... Uh, yeah, we talked about quite a bit today. Uh, we, we we really covered a lot of topics. Um, is there anything that you would kind of like to like to end on, and um, you know, give our listeners a um, any sort of last uh, la last informing points or advice? I guess you could say, uh, or perhaps people that that you know, perhaps some sort of advice for those who want to get into this field and what they can expect. Yeah. So. Um, Again, if right, if if there are people out there that um, are engaged by some of the topics that we've talked about today, that there is an area study that you can focus on, and again, you would, you know, uh, get a high school degree and then um, and then apply to one of the programs. Uh, and in Ontario, there's a lot of them that offer social psychology um, and or psychology in general, and then you can focus on that. You can. Uh, once you get an undergraduate degree, you can go to graduate school to specialize and then ultimately become an academic. One of the great things about social psychology is that you really, your, your skill set is really um, research. Uh, right. So it's research methods, it's statistics, it's those kinds of, and uh, the things that help you to figure things out and to ask and answer questions. And there's uh, many applied opportunities too, from polling, becoming a pollster or working in marketing, uh, in organizations, in healthcare. There's just a, uh, a broad range of options for people to, um, to, to work in, but uh probably the majority of people who do those applied positions will wind up having a PhD. So, mm, amazing. Yeah. And I mean, given that you, you, you don't use social media, um, how can, yeah. how, can, how can people learn more about your work online? Yeah. So I, I do have a website and, uh, but they can certainly reach out to me and just um, through York University, Googling me up there and, yep. uh, and access to that. And I'm certainly able to reach out to people, although I, I'm not, uh, a big fan of social media. Right. I certainly use email and, uh, I'm approachable and, uh, and, and, uh, there's, yeah, I'm open to people <laughs> certainly reaching out to me to learn more about. What's what's your what's the name of your website? Uh, the website is um, http uh, colon uh, forward slash forward slash struthers my name s t r u t h e r s dot info i n f o uh, dot york u dot c a forward slash that should get you there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't think anyone have any mistakes spelling that one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Ward, for uh, coming on the show, coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. 
Um, it was amazing to, to, to hear about these, uh, the, these teachings once again, and it was just great having you. Yeah. My pleasure, Kapil. Thanks for inviting me. It's great yeah. to see you again. <laughs> Not a problem. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you had a great week. Until next time.